0: I'm Brazil.
1: I'm Nick, and this is Growing Pains, a podcast about the corporatization of Trent University and how it affects students, faculty, and the community in which our university lies. We want to tell you the story of how this small, collegial, Liberal Arts University has grown into something else, something unrecognizable from its original form.
0: How did we end up with buildings and stadiums named after wealthy donors? Why is the university building a research park atop a drumlin? Why does a multinational food conglomerate have monopoly over food service at Trent? As students, we have a right to the university, to participate in shaping its present and its future. But what do we do when that right isn't being upheld? And how do we uphold it?
1: Our first episode is about the Board of Governors. We chose to start here because we think there's no better example of corporatization at Trent than the concentration of power in a group of wealthy financial executives who know little about the Trent that you and I know. They know Trent by the numbers. They make decisions on behalf of students, faculty, and the community and ultimately chart much of the course for Trent's future.
0: In this episode, we're going to get you acquainted with Trent's current Board of Governors, and hopefully make you question why these people are the ones making decisions about your university. But first, we'll need to explain how we got here. And to do that, we have to rewind to the very tumultuous time in Trent's history, in the late 1990s and early 2000s, when a court ruling changed governance at Trent Forever. This was a time of dramatic conflict between students, faculty, and administration. Nick and I have only been around Trent since around 2016, so we needed someone with a bit more perspective to help us tell this story. So we called up a historian.
2: I'm David Tuff. I'm a contract instructor in Canadian Studies and in History at Trent University. I'm a historian of the welfare state and taxation in Canadian history. And in 1999 to 2002, I was um, an organizer, student organizer, and then a student journalist um, trying to stop the campus consolidation, the closure of the Natown Colleges, and the corporatization of Trent University, Um, an endeavor in which I mostly failed but learned a lot.
1: David mentioned the consolidation and the closure of the downtown colleges. Trent's once had a second downtown college named Peter Robinson, which is now Sadler House. We aren't going to spend too much time today on that story. It's a really important one because it marks the beginning of Trent's shift towards corporatization. But we're going to devote a whole episode to student activism later in this series, and that story will be discussed at length. For now, we're going to attempt to explain how we got here, how we arrived at a university that is governed by a small group of people with little experience in academic institutions.
0: Where do PhDs, professors, workers, where do they fit into decision-making at Trent?
1: The answer is that post-secondary hasn't always been this way. Trent was founded on a bicameral system of governance. This is the type of system where governance is balanced between the academic and financial needs of the university.
2: So the bicameral system establishes a kind of division of labor between two governing bodies. So one governing body is dealing with the physical plant, is dealing with the finances, is dealing with the sort of nitty gritty, the kind of thing that, you would, that any large organization would have. That's what the Board of Governors is in charge of. And then the Senate is in charge of the academic, maintaining the academic integrity and the academic mission of the university. So Senate does things like approves um, new departments, approves new courses, changes requirements. So Senate and Board of Governors are separated, reflecting a kind of common tradition that universities are self-governing communities and that the best arbiters of whether something is academically sound is other academics. So having a sort of collegiate approach to decision-making tends to tends to work the best. And places where they've tried to bring them together and sort of use a unicameral system, the faculty tend to get completely overwhelmed and the academic mission of the university tends to get completely overwhelmed by that. But so at Trent in particular, the way that the bicameral system worked was that the board of governors was very hands-off for the first long while and had a very limited negative role. And the Senate, on the other hand, kind of that side of things kind of ballooned into other governing bodies. So when Senate was seen to be too procedural, they set up a faculty council. Which was a kind of true parliament of all the faculty. And so we would call a faculty council, and whoever showed up that day was faculty council. And then the universe, the administration said, this is just too chaotic. We need to have a body that's just the chairs so we can make administrative decisions more quickly. So then they set up faculty board, which still exists. And so the the, the faculty side got more and more elaborate. And then there were um, committees that were established that had a lot of power, and this is all above and beyond Tuffa, the faculty union. Tuffa executive and the executive of the university tend to be kind of switching places all the time, so they were very, very cozy with one another. And they might fight when you know one of them was the VP administration and the other one was head of the union, but then you know, two years later, they'd be switched. And it was kind of no hard feelings kind of thing. And the board got seriously irritated by this in the 90s when there were two strikes. And so by the time those two strikes ended, the board said, we need to get control of the university. So at that point, they appointed an administration that was from outside the university, was much more sympathetic to the administration with the intent of having a more board-run university, which is why Bonnie Patterson was brought in.
0: So David just laid the groundwork for this shift in governance. Trent's president, Bonnie Patterson, is important to this part of the story because she became the figurehead and somewhat of a fearless leader for an administration that prioritized economic growth at the expense of everything else. This was the 90s, and the name of the game was austerity.
1: In the lead-up to Bonnie's presidency, there were serious concerns about governance, Trent had 10 different presidents between Simons and Patterson, and an external review of Trent's governance conducted in 1997 flagged tensions within Trent's bicameral, collegiate system.
0: In Daniel Nelson's review of the events we're about to explain, he writes, quote, prophetically, the Arthur's Lorimer Report, this 1997 review, noted the existence of a system of multiple vetoes, where the informal habits of earlier and smaller days were translated into a politically fragmented system, which, while properly anticipating widespread consultation of all constituencies, has no clear means of moving on from disagreement amongst them. Quote.
1: This is technical speak for the fact that Trent's governance system had grown in an uneven way that lacked efficiency and maybe even encouraged disagreement.
0: So at the same time that Trent was wrestling with these questions of governance, the tides had changed in the realm of provincial and federal funding for post-secondary institutions. Neoliberalism was here to stay, and public funding was drying up. Brian Mulroney's 1984 progressive-conservative win meant that the flow of funding to the provinces changed substantially. And provincially, throughout the 1990s, Ontario reduced operating grants to post-secondary institutions— with the faith that these bodies would find their own financial way. Principally, a 15% reduction in 1996 and seven required tuition increases to make up for these budget shortfalls.
1: So universities were being steadily starved out of public money and were expected to bridge this gap through tuition or alternative revenue streams. Mike Harris's conservative provincial government introduced ideas that continued this trend like Key Performance Indicators and the SuperBuild program. SuperBuild was an investment project that would reward post-secondary institutions with funding for new builds that involved the private sector.
2: So like the federal government moving money from transfers to the provinces into Canada Research Chair and SHRC and that kind of thing, these kind of uh, sparkling Uh, things to, to exceptional academics. The provincial government tried to do the same thing where they said instead of giving money to universities just for operating, which isn't very impressive, why don't we make them compete for large amounts of money so they have to come up with an elaborate plan That's not only going to cut costs, but it's, you know, the money we give them is going to lead to way more money because that's what you always have to do with money. So Trent played along with this and said, we're going to close the downtown colleges, getting rid of this liability, and then we're going to open a new part of the university, which is going to be half funded by a private partner. So that was the proposal that they put in. They wanted that money, and they claimed that they were going to be able to leverage it into a situation that was going to make them a whole bunch of money.
0: A big part of Bonnie Patterson's mandate was to appease the Harris government. So it became imperative for Trent to participate in this shift towards having universities compete for government grants. This is how Trent arrived at the Superbuild application process.
1: Something that would prove challenging for Bonnie in her office is that Trent was miles away from what Harris wanted a university to be. Somehow, Trent had managed to persist in its uniqueness and remained relatively unscathed from the structural shifts that dominated the post-secondary sphere at this time.
2: Tom Simons had a vision of the university that was very decentralized, very much about people being themselves and people, you know, put, put someone in charge of, if someone really cares deeply about Canadian studies, put that person in charge of Canadian studies and they'll fight for Canadian studies, rather than putting someone who you can make do what you want you find the person who's the strongest to be in that pool, and they'll fight and that's all the parts of the university are fighting against one another all the time and that's the simons i mean it's very polite it's very gentlemanly they drink tea they have like slices of cake and so on but the assumption is that everybody's fighting for their part of the university that's how the university functions best so if you add on top of that a whole bunch of the cultural studies faculty were new left Hippy types who hated any kind of authority, and so they latched onto PR, and so Peter Robinson became a kind of institutional expression of that. So going into the '90s, there was a very different culture at Trent than other places. So there was a very, very strong uh, faculty union, and the faculty union was intertwined with the university administration in ways that it wasn't in other places, like there wasn't a real. The labour management relationship was between the board and all the faculty. So that had broken down in other places faster. So I think Trent was more uh, a laggard in that than a leader.
0: Something else that set Trent apart from other universities at this time was founder Tom Simon's college system.
2: They had students in them and they had fellows in them and those students and fellows created the culture. And so for instance, whoever they thought should be the head of the college should be the head of the college. The idea that those people worked for the administration was very foreign to that approach. They were paid by the administration, but they were not they were not employees of the administration.
1: This is why when the Patterson administration's superbuild proposal hinged on the sale of the downtown colleges, students and faculty were incensed. It was almost entirely nonsensical to them. Their understanding of Trent was so grounded in Simon's collegial vision, they couldn't understand what Trent would be without two of its colleges.
0: The plan proposed selling Peter Robinson College first, with Catherine Parr Trail College to come later. By the time the issue came before the Board of Governors in November of 1999, there were 600 protesters outside of Bata, where the meeting was taking place. Over 1,000 people had signed a petition in opposition to the sale.
1: Ultimately, the Board of Governors voted to move forward with the superbuild proposal. In doing so, they would make history. This was the first time the Board of Governors had moved forward with something previously voted down by the university's other governance body, the Senate.
2: At the time, we had the benefit that the norm was still, that the Senate made the big decisions in the university. So the idea that the board overruled Senate, it was very few people who weren't shocked by that. And even when when the board was making their decision, you could see that a lot of the people were like, this is really, I don't want to be doing this, but it's a necessity. Like we've been told it's a necessity. All the documents say it's a necessity. But being a member of the board of governors of a university, the last thing I want to do is overrule the Senate. That was just so established as a norm.
0: The closing of the downtown colleges was presented as an inevitability, as well as a financial necessity. The logic of capital was expected to overrule what everyone knew to be right at the time. There is a lot of debate as to whether the sale of the downtown colleges was even a financially strategic move, with some members of the Senate claiming that the administration had manufactured a financial crisis for their own ends.
1: When it became clear that the Patterson administration was going to stick to their guns, faculty decided to take matters into their own hands. Three professors, Peter Kolchiski, Ian McLaughlin, and Andrew Wernick, took this debacle to the courts and filed an application for judicial review on January 21, 2000. This is something akin to the faculty suing Trent, but instead of the university having to pay for damages, they just have to reverse their decision. The function of the Judicial Review was to ask the courts to come in as an arbiter, to basically blow the whistle on Trent for going against their own policy and against the legislation that governs Trent's existence. Ultimately, the intention was to ask one big question. Did the board break the law by ignoring the Senate's position?
0: And while this might sound like boring legal stuff, it's important to remember that what the faculty was really fighting for was one of their few democratic mechanisms left at Trent, the Senate.
1: Ultimately, the court interpreted the governance structure outlined in the Trent Act as the Senate's authority being narrow, while the board's authority was wide. The Senate's jurisdiction was limited to educational programming, policy, and delivery, but the board's authority was to encapsulate everything else. As law student Daniel Nelson wrote in his judicial review of the case, quote, thus true power was concentrated in the hands of the body that controlled the purse strings. Without money, educational policy is often meaningless, unquote.
0: This decision marks a clear departure from the bicameral system that Trent had relied on for decades. It tied power to capital in ways that continue to affect the university 20 years later. The decision had grave implications and caught the attention of many in the post-secondary sphere who were concerned about the ways that educators' collective autonomy was being encroached upon, including the Canadian Association of University Teachers.
1: And so an appeal was launched. It was heard in June of 2001 and was met with a split decision, with two justices opting to uphold the original decision and one judge dissenting. As Daniel Nelson sees it, quote, The majority decision had several fatal flaws. It incorrectly applied the law as it relates to standing. It left open questions as to the duty of fairness criteria. And perhaps most fundamentally, it simply posited the wrong decision. The majority focused on economic expediency of the board's decision rather than determining a method to deal with the overlapping jurisdiction of both bodies."
0: Ultimately, the court failed to really answer the question at hand. The appeal became about whether the Board of Governors had made a good financial decision in selling the colleges, instead of whether they were at fault in disregarding the wishes of the Senate.
1: The court construed the actions of the faculty as individual, divorced from the Senate more broadly, and the the decision to close the colleges did not infringe upon their rights or privileges as faculty but rather prioritized the public interest in closing the colleges so that the university could afford to remain open. But, of course, it wasn't just the three professors acting alone, but the desire of an entire community, literally thousands, to keep the colleges open. Not to mention that the financial unfeasibility of keeping the colleges open was never proven.
0: The court paved the way for governance at Trent to change completely, After this decision, Senate pretty much withered on the vine.
2: The changes to Senate, which definitely happened after the judicial review, although Bonnie Patterson was apologetic, the Senate then started governing itself. The administrators in charge of Senate started being very careful about not letting senators do anything that would suggest that the overruling of Senate was wrong. So, for instance, they would say, we're going to create a new program, but then there would be a a part that was like the financial part, and they would say, just for information. they would make a big deal of saying, like, you don't control the budget. Nothing to do with budget is controlled by you. So they would say, like, this is just for information. This is what Senate does. Senate approves decisions that were already made by somebody else. A lot of people in Senate were really upset about that, were really grumbling about it, like, why are we Why are we here? One time there was a Senate meeting, so the, the development of educational technologies sort of is a, a thing that happens <coughs> historically at the same time that they, <laughs> the first time I ever uh, experienced uh, a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> was in a Senate meeting shortly after <laughs> the Senate, uh, board overruled the Senate, and So the whole meeting was a PowerPoint about like how to have an effective meeting. (laughs) It was so absurd. And people were just like, they had come to Senate to like speak out, people had motions they wanted to move, they had like strategize. And then the entire meeting was just like a super dull uh, PowerPoint presentation about being respectful and listening to one another and so on. (laughs) Um, So there was an attempt to try to A half-hearted very um, improvised attempt to try to make it make sense and then in 2002 I guess it was uh, I think Senate executive agreed to sever almost all of the non-academic committees from Senate so they were taking the winning argument of the judicial review and applying it in practice to Senate so they were separating so Senate budget committee I don't know where it is now. I've never heard anybody mention Senate Budget Committee for a long time, but I know that at the time they made Senate Budget Committee advisory um, that it could be asked to give reports, but it wasn't like, it wasn't to run itself. It wasn't to like operate as a permanent thing. And so anything that had to do with physical plant, which previously had answered the Senate, was moved over to, Um, board of governors so they're trying to like rationalize all this stuff and make senate you know senate um the library can answer to senate and also the board of governors and some things overlap but most things you know either answer to senate or to the board of governors and they're there it was a kind of retroactive attempt to try to make senate um, have a very narrow mandate the mandate that they claimed it had when they overruled it Mm. Yeah. And that was definitely the the end of any real ability to use Senate as a kind of um, assemb- general assembly of the university, which is what it, what it effectively was during that crisis.
1: And this has had a variety of implications that range from boring to medium interesting. As David mentions, Many of the committees that used to have a major hand in running the university are now simply advisory, and the Senate was made to approve decisions that had already been made.
0: With decreased power in the Senate, and therefore in the hands of faculty themselves, governance at Trent would continue to change in ways that no one could have seen
2: coming. Senate is kind of supposed to be the ultimate arbiter of whether a course exists now what happens of course is that the course is designed by someone else approved by the administration and then goes up on the website and then they come to senate and say this is for approval and everyone's like um it's already on the website are there already students enrolled in this program (laughs) like what stage are we at are we allowed to say no because it seems like we're not allowed to say no
1: here we see that these changes to governance not only expanded the power of the Board of Governors, but also began to limit the power of the Senate even further. Issues that were previously within the Senate's jurisdiction seem to lie increasingly outside of it. These changes had far-reaching consequences.
2: There's been a professionalization of management and of decision-making. So the, the Office of Student Affairs, for instance, didn't exist before Bonnie Patterson. So students spend a lot more time interacting with people who are experts at dealing with whatever crisis it is they're dealing with. They're a lot less likely to go to a faculty member. Also, there are, depending on the department, there are very few permanent faculty who are available to students on a a regular basis because in order to get a permanent faculty position, in the last 10 years you have to be a very very high producing academic and it's very rare that that also is, makes you somebody who really wants to hang out with students and really wants to get involved in campus activism. There are some people but the, the overwhelming effect of that is that you have people who are very focused on their professional community outside the university. The other side of that the casualization of faculty is that a growing number of people who are teaching courses are not permanently associated with the university. So it's very unpredictable what their role in the university is. They're subject to huge potential recrimination, not usually by the administration, but by other faculty in the department.
0: The changes that Tuff is describing, the professionalization of decision-making, of management, the casualization of academic labor, are all things that began with the limiting of faculty's power. But these decisions ultimately affect students.
1: Here we can begin to understand how Patterson's administration and the legal controversy they caused didn't just alter governance at Trent, but began to change the culture of the institution.
0: So that's the story of how we arrived here. But where exactly are we? Now we're going to switch gears to talking about the present moment, and how it's been shaped by all of this.
1: During the 2020-21 school year, Trans Board of Governors had 21 members, excluding the president and chancellor, who also technically sit on the board. Of these 21 appointed members, there are two student members, one from Peterborough, one from Durham, two faculty members, and two staff members.
0: This leaves 15 members of the Trent Board of Governors who are neither employed by nor students of Trent University. Each of these 15 members were at one point selected by the Board's Nominating and Governance Committee, which bring in new members from the external community to occupy this majority and they make decisions on behalf of the university.
1: Of these 15 members, 10 of them have backgrounds in finance and real estate, only two of which gained this experience in the public sector. Of the remaining five members, one is an expert in private sector public relations, one is a healthcare administrator, one was a law professor during the end of apartheid South Africa, and two are former police officers.
0: One of these members, selected from the external community, unexpectedly resigned from his position on January 18th of this year. As Arthur reported last month, John Desbien, CEO of Cambium, a quickly growing engineering and consulting firm, stepped down from his position for what the university called personal reasons.
1: The day before his resignation, Desbien had been found unresponsive behind the wheel of his car, with the engine running stopped in the middle of Hayes Lane in Cavan, Monaghan Township. Peterborough police arrested John Debian for operation while impaired by alcohol or drugs, and operation while impaired with a blood alcohol concentration over 80. Debian was issued a 90-day driver's license suspension, and his vehicle was impounded for seven days.
0: The university did not announce Debian's departure from the board, nor did they include any information about the events that preceded it. Instead, they deleted his information from the Board of Governors' website. And Nick likely would not have noticed Debian's name had disappeared if he had not been one of the more vocal proponents of the Trent-Lance plan. He penned his support for the project in the Examiner in the fall of 2020.
1: In addition to being on the Board of Governors, Debian was on the Board of Directors for NobleGen, Inc., Quinta Commons' inaugural tenant. He was chair of the board for the Kawartha Land Trust, the Peterborough Innovation Cluster, and Peterborough and the Kawartha's economic development. His company recently moved to a newly renovated office on Sophia Street, citing a need for more space for their growing company. In 2019, Cambium Inc. was named one of Canada's top growing companies by the Globe and Mail, with their 2018 revenue estimated to be around 10 or $25 million.
0: Other governors of note include Armand Labarge and Brian Cowie, both of whom are former police officers. Armand Labarge is the board's outgoing chair and culminated his board duties at their most recent meeting on June 25th of this year. Labarge began his career with York Regional Police in 1973, and in 2002, he was appointed Chief of Police for York Region, a position he held until his retirement in December of 2010.
1: Another governor who caught our eye is Dr. Robin Jacobson, someone who actually has worked in academia, but under interesting circumstances. The first position on Jacobson's LinkedIn page is at the Office of the Attorney General in Durban, South Africa, in 1979. She went on to work as a law professor at the University of Natal and the University of Durban-Westville throughout most of the 80s and 90s. Both of these universities were later amalgamated into the University of KwaZulu-Natal as part of national reconstruction efforts after apartheid. Jacobson began working at the University of Natal in 1981, and at the time, it was still technically a white-only university, although it had begun to allow black students to attend in small numbers. In 1983, just 531 of its almost 10,000 students were Black.
0: In the late 90s, Jacobson came to Canada to work at the Toronto Heschel School before going on to work in mediation and conflict management. In 2011, Jacobson completed her PhD at York's graduate program in law. Her dissertation is entitled Managing Conflict and Resolving Disputes Involving Students on University Campuses The Present and the Future.
1: Jacobson actually studied Trent in her dissertation, and as far as we know, this was her only connection to the university before she became a member of the board. This is the exact kind of work that David Tuff highlighted earlier when he mentioned the professionalization of management and decision-making. Students are now seen as angry customers that must be soothed or pacified rather than legitimate stakeholders whose complaints ought to be responded to.
0: The board also boasts membership from Krista Scaldwell, who did public relations for massive multinational corporations like Coca-Cola and Johnson & Johnson. Her husband was Mike Harris's communication aide.
1: Other members include Jamie McKenna, managing director at Fenway Asset Management, an investment firm that manages over $5 billion in assets, including both private equity and real estate. Julian Smith is another member that works in asset management. He is currently president and CEO of Bull Wealth, an investment advisory and consulting firm offering solutions to high net worth families and institutional investors.
0: Remember, the board selects its members based on the skill sets identified in the board's position profile that's updated annually. So the concentration of members who have backgrounds in finance or real estate or public relations is intentional. The board mandates the skill sets it's looking for, and it somehow is always looking for those with experience in the private sector.
1: As of July 1st, 2021, the board was joined by five new members, one of which will occupy a staff seat, while another will occupy a student seat. Here is a brief breakdown of the incoming members from the external community.
0: Pras, Kaila Sanathan, an investment banker whose expertise lies in corporate finance, mergers, and acquisitions, as well as technology and healthcare banking.
1: Kate Ahrens, VP, Interior Design and Corporate Development for Flying Colors Corp., which provides maintenance and design services to the international aviation market.
0: Valentine Lovkin, a lawyer with offices in Toronto and Newcastle, whose expertise lies in real estate, corporate, and estate law.
1: Okay, but what can we learn from this lengthy list of corporate elites? The university values people with backgrounds in the private sector because the university is desperately trying to make itself palatable to profit. And these are just the people who will be able to see this project through. Who is better positioned to bring in new revenue streams and provide access to all the right networks than a bunch of people with a bunch of different connections to capital?
0: But how does this concentration of people with corporate backgrounds limit the university? Who's left out so that money has a seat at the table? I mean, we have experts in investment, banking, public relations, and even law enforcement. But where are the experts in education or ethics? How does this narrow everything that trent can be and what does this bias lend itself to
1: some of these governors have amassed more wealth than most of us can fathom how does that limit their ability to understand what it means to be a struggling student in the year 2021 how many of these governors still have a student loan they're paying off how many of their children will rely on government assistance to attend post-secondary
0: When we start to understand who the Board of Governors are, it helps to contextualize some of the decisions they've made, like voting to commercialize Trent lands through the lands plan or saving millions of dollars in COVID recovery funds instead of investing the money back in students or implementing an 8% increase to international student tuition and hiking out of province tuition by 3%. Trent
1: University's Board of Governors has a class problem. They're predominantly wealthy, and they make decisions on behalf of a demographic that is categorically economically stratified, students. They also have a race problem, in that the vast majority of governors are white, and when we say vast, we mean it. The board has only had a handful of POC members in recent years, and this doesn't seem to be changing very rapidly either.
0: The bottom line is that while there may be some alumnus members of the BOG, most of its members have pretty tenuous connections to the university itself. Most members have very little understanding of Trent as it exists on the ground.
1: Faculty, staff, and student positions on the board are limited to two years, while positions for external community members are capped at three. This provides less time to familiarize oneself with the policies and processes involved with sitting on the board and limits what can be accomplished within these roles. There has long been an issue of student members of the board not being provided with the necessary tools to have agency in this role. Farida Imana, the outgoing student member, told Arthur that the board is, quote, not really a group project brainstorm session, more of a lecture or presentation.
0: And her comment really sums up what it's like to engage with the board as a student. It's often apparent that efforts to consult students are performative and the extent to which student voices are listened to remains questionable.
1: When we spoke with David Tuff, we learned that this is nothing new.
2: A bunch of students invaded the board of governors meeting and then the security managed to get the door closed. So then everybody was kind of stuck inside the room together. And the meeting fell apart. So then the meeting after that, they were like, we're going to have it in the Great Hall. So they had it in the Great Hall. They removed all the chairs, except for the chairs that they needed around the Board of Governors. They had a rope around the Board of Governors, where the Board of Governors were meeting. And then they had a whole bunch of security. They had a whole bunch of maintenance workers from the university brought in as kind of (laughs) brawn. Which was such a strange idea. I don't know why they did that. It was so such a silly like there were there were security people, but then there was just a whole bunch of guys in blue coveralls. Talk about a public relations problem. So you had to apply beforehand to give a speech. Because of that, it was very easy to to show how absurd this was. That like four months before you were governing a university in a very normal way. You made one really bad decision and now you're acting like you're in Italy in the 1920s. Like, this is not how a university works. Like, you know that this is weird. At that meeting of the Board of Governors, we had a debate beforehand about whether we would even go and speak because it was such a fake fake listening to us kind of situation, fake um, democracy.
0: What David describes as acting like they're in Italy in the 1920s is pretty much exactly how the board runs meetings today. Closed sessions are closed and open sessions aren't really open. Yes, you're allowed in, but you aren't allowed to speak unless you've applied to speak, which is what's called a deputation. And the handful of times I've attended a board meeting, I've only seen this done once.
1: In speaking with David, I think we both really identified with the sentiment expressed by one student organizer working to save the downtown
2: colleges. Sarah Lambo, who was the main spokesperson, said, I don't want to go. I don't want to pretend that this is a real thing.
0: Why act like it's real? Why play into the performance of student engagement? We've been attending Board of Governors meetings since we've been editors, and we've witnessed all the ways the board can inhibit any kind of collaboration or discussion.
1: In February, we watched as Dorothy Taylor, an elder from Curve Lake First Nation, asked the board to vote down the lands plan proposal, which outlines the development of much of campus. Not only did they go ahead and pass the plan, but they didn't allow Dorothy Taylor to speak after her allotted time. She repeatedly raised her hand and Chair Armand Labarge refused to let her speak.
0: In March, we saw the board vote to increase international students' tuition by 8%, with no discussion. No one even knew about it before it was happening at the meeting.
1: And just last month, the board increased out-of-province tuition by 3%, creating for the first time differential tuition rates for domestic students. This was hard to watch, because the University of Ottawa's student union had successfully lobbied against this exact increase only a month earlier. It seems that if the TCSA had known about this motion, they would have been able to do something about it.
0: But the fact is, a Board of Governors meeting dictated by Roberts' rules isn't exactly a viable avenue for most students or community members to engage with and have their voices heard. Then, there are issues with the ways that the Board of Governors advertises their meetings and make materials available to the public. If you don't know where to look, you might never find it. Even once you get there, you may not be able to say anything. And if you do, you have just five minutes. You can't say anything beyond that unless you are asked a question directly by a board member.
1: Something else we've noticed is that there is an unrelenting reliance on financial logic there is a need to factor in bottom lines and revenue streams that is always taken for granted.
2: It's a nature of neoliberalism that it's it's often framed as a reality, especially the, you know, the 90s version of neoliberalism, the first half of the 90s. Um, Bob Ray was always like, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do. Like, we've got to do something. So we have to cut a whole bunch of funding to universities and schools and hospitals and and cut welfare and there is a, a fallback on the, the budget is a is an easy gesture. I mean Bonnie Patterson was was very different. She did talk about the reality and she would say things like, well, you know, we have to face reality. You know we have to face reality. But a lot of what she talked about was was kind of like the future is there's no call, no downtown colleges. So you people I don't know what's wrong with you, but that's not happening anymore. So just move on. And the future, it's going to be great. She's a very, very disciplined, very intelligent person and could just say, like, this is going to be fantastic. Even if, like, she's in the middle of a blizzard, she'd just be like, yeah, everything is really great. And I'm really proud to be here and to be at the center of all this.
0: (laughs) The board, the administration, they love to pretend that their hands are tied that they exist entirely at the mercy of provincial and federal whims. But we're here to remind you that they have latitude, they have agency, they have power.
1: To construe this political project as a mere inevitability of neoliberal capitalism is to remove democracy from the university entirely, to negate the role of the student in shaping the university. But what would a school be without its students?
0: Professor Alison Hearn offers us a different way of understanding the university. Contrary to popular belief, the term university doesn't refer to a universality of knowledge, as some would expect, but rather to, as Charles Homer Hoskins writes, the totality of a group, whether of barbers, carpenters, or students. The first universitas of students, organized as a group in order to protect themselves from the price-gouging activities of the townspeople, These unions of students, once incorporated, found themselves able to make other kinds of demands, most notably of their teachers. In the southern universities of Italy, teachers were beholden to the fees students would pay per lecture, and as such became subject to the universitas of students. So let it not be said that the university has never before followed a consumer model of education. In short, the university is predicated on the collective rights of students to organize to build the university we want to attend, to have agency in making it a better place for the next cohort.
1: Ultimately, the university remains complicatedly undemocratic. What can be done to push this monolithic institution closer to this alternative ideal that we're describing? We're working on it. Keep listening.
0: In the next episode, we're going to be diving into Trent's most recent mega build, the new clean, green research and innovation park, Cleantech Commons. We compare it to the big purchases of Trent's past and ask, will it be profitable? Is our university good at business? And perhaps more importantly, is this business good at university?
1: All that and more on the next episode of Growing Pains. Thank you to David Tuff for providing such an informative and enthusiastic interview that really guided much of the episode you just heard.
0: Thanks also to Daniel Nelson and Allison Hearn for their academic work, which we relied on throughout this episode.
1: If you like this podcast, check out our website, www.trentarthur.ca. You can find articles about Trent, Ngojuvenang Peterborough happenings, art, poetry, puzzles, and so much more. Please consider supporting our work through a monthly donation. You can donate on our website trentarthur.ca/donate. We are Nick Taylor
0: and Brazil Gaffney Knox, the co-editors in chief of Arthur Newspaper for Volume Fifty Five and Fifty Six. Arthur Newspaper is the independent student press at Trent University. Our office is located in the student-owned Victorian mansion called Sadler House in Ngojwanong, Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. We research, record, and learn on the traditional territory of the Michisagig Anishinaabe. We are grateful for their care of and teachings about the land. Maybe strive to be decolonial in all that we do.